The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. The text we're going to be looking at this morning is from 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. The title of the message is, Responding Well to Suffering. Responding well to suffering. You know, as we think about suffering and, and persecution, it's not something new for the Christian. It's not something that's surprising to us. In our, in our text this morning, we're going to see that. You see suffering from Jesus Christ through the apostles, through the early church fathers, all the way up through the Reformation to the modern age. There's, there's suffering that's going on in the church. In our text this morning, Peter's addressing this text to a group of individuals who were about to enter into a major time of persecution. It's really the first great persecution that they're about to enter into. You see, it was July of 64 AD, and Rome had burned to the ground. It was completely decimated. Two-thirds of the city was destroyed. Thousands of people were had died. Thousands more had been displaced or homeless. And so this was the situation they were in. And what happened was the people began to blame this on the emperor at the time, whose name was Nero. They started thinking, well, you know, Nero wanted to build a new palace. So he wasn't there, but perhaps he had his, his generals or his soldiers burn the city down so he could build a new palace. By the way, if you've ever been to Rome, where the Colosseum is now, that's where Nero's palace was. But this was the the rumor that was going around, that Nero had started this fire. So he had to do something about this. He had to switch the blame to somebody else because he didn't want an uprising. He didn't want the people to overthrow him. So what he did was he chose this, this relatively small group of people in this new religion that was kind of growing called Christians. And he blamed it on them. I want to read uh, an excerpt from Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read that, I would recommend it. It's a great book. It can be depressing (laughs) or joyous at the same time. But I want to read an excerpt about this whole account of the fire. So it says, This dreadful inferno continued nine days. When Nero discovered that he was being blamed and that the people had a growing hatred for him, he determined to lay the blame upon the Christians in order to excuse himself and also to give him the opportunity to indulge in his perverse desires with new cruelties. This was the occasion of the first persecution and the atrocities exercised on the Christians were so wicked that even the Romans themselves began to sympathize with the Christians. Nero tired himself coming up with new forms of horrendous, cruel punishments for the Christians. Punishments that only the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some of them sewed up in the skins of wild beasts and then allowed dogs to attack them until they died. Others, he dressed in shirts made stiff with wax and fixed them to wooden posts setting them ablaze in his gardens in order to illumine his gardens for his parties. 
This persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire. But rather than diminish the spirit of the Christians, it emboldened them. In the course of this persecution, St. Paul and Peter were both executed. This was the first major persecution that we see in history, but it wouldn't be the last. You see persecutions under Diocletian, one of the other emperors, Marcus Aurelius, all these persecutions. And then you come down into, you know, closer proximity to us, the 1500s. In the 1550s, you had a woman come to the throne named Mary Tudor. Now, a little background on Mary. She was the daughter of Henry VIII. Now, Henry had ushered the the Protestant Reformation into England. It wasn't for good motives, though. You see, Henry wanted to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and the Pope wouldn't let him do it. So Henry said, fine, I don't need you. I'll just bring the, the Protestant Reformation to England, and I'll become the head of the church. Thus, the Anglican Church began with Henry as the head. Well, Henry dies, and his son Edward becomes king. Edward's a very sickly young man. He only lives to about 16, and he dies. He was a Protestant as well. He actually had conversations with John Calvin. So the Protestant Reformation was taking hold in England. Edward dies. His sister Mary becomes the queen. Mary is an ardent Catholic. She hates the Protestant Reformation, so she wants to bring England back into the fold of Rome So she begins executing all of these Protestant reformers. She executes, you you know these people, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer. She executes them all. She burns them at the stake. But it wasn't just people like these these high-profile individuals. It was people just like me and you. There's one account of a young lady named Alice Driver. Alice was executed in November of 1558, But before she was executed, she was young. She was probably 17, 18 years old. Before she was executed, she was brought to the closest big city near her, named, uh, it was called Ipswich. And she stood before Sir Clement Hegum. And he told her to recant her faith, and she wouldn't do it. He told her to recant. She, 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 there's no way that she would accept transubstantiation. She just wouldn't accept the Catholic doctrines. And in this conversation, she compares Mary Tudor, or how we know her as Bloody Mary, to Jezebel. And at that moment, Sir Clement says, cut her ears off. So as she stood there, they cut her ears off. And then they, she still wouldn't recant. So they dragged her to the stake. And here are her last words. You are not able to resist the Spirit of God in me. A poor woman... I am an honest, poor man's daughter, never brought up in the university as you have been, but I have driven the plow before my father many a time. Even so, in the defense of God's truth and in the cause of my master Christ, by his grace, I will set my foot against the foot of any one of you. And if I had a thousand lives, I would give them all for this cause, for the cause of Christ. And at that point, They tied her to the stake, they strangled her, and they burned her. That's persecution. And we could go on. 
We could go on today. It's, this isn't something that's just so far in the past. We could go to China and see the same thing happening today. We could go to the Middle East and see the same thing happening today. Africa, probably, parts of Africa. These same things are happening today that happened to these individuals back then. So the question we need to ask ourselves is how will we respond when that persecution or that suffering comes to us? How are we to respond? Well, the answer to that question is the same as it was for those who suffered under Nero or those who suffered under Diocletian or Mary or those who are suffering in China today. The answer is the same for us. And we see it in this passage. There's no ambiguity here. There's no, um, it's not like we don't understand what it's saying here. God wants us to know how to respond in our sufferings. So from 1 Peter this morning, we're going to look at three imperatives, three commands to help us respond biblically to suffering and persecution when it comes. We'll see that first of all, we're not to be surprised as we suffer for Christ. We're to keep on rejoicing as we suffer for Christ and we're to make sure that our suffering is actually for Christ. So what I'm going to do is I want to read the text and then I want to pray and we'll dig in and look at these imperatives. Fair enough? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we're so grateful for the opportunity we have um, to look into your word. I pray that it would have an effect on us that it would do its work in our heart and that we would be doers of your word, desiring to be obedient to it. Thank you for preserving your word through the years. Thank you for the godly men and women who, who suffered for, for you and for your word throughout the years. And I just pray that we would be diligent to stand firm, that we would glorify you, we would magnify your name if persecution and suffering or when persecution and suffering comes to our door. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first imperative we see here is actually a negative. It's telling us what not to do. Look at verses 12. We're being told not to be surprised as we suffer for Christ. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, first of all, notice who's, who, Paul's, or who uh, Peter's addressing here. He starts off with beloved. 
That's a term of, of endearment, a, an intimate term for, that you use for your children, beloved. It's a caring term. And if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see when he elaborates on who this, he's writing to, it says this, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So in both of these passages, in our passages and at the beginning, when he's talking to the recipients, he, he's showing them their wonderful position before God. He wants them to understand before he's, he, he goes into telling them what to do, he's reminding them of their wonderful position. They're foreigners. They're strangers to this world. This isn't their home. We shouldn't get too comfortable here. We're just here for a short time. And he's reminding them of that as they're about to enter into persecution. You're strangers. You're aliens to this world. Then he tells them that they're chosen people. They're elect unto salvation. We're chosen by God. And then in our text, he says they're beloved, tenderly caring for them. He tenderly cares for them as their father. So he's pointing out that they're chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, redeemed by the Son. And these truths should bring about encouragement, should give them the right perspective as he enters into telling them how to deal with this persecution. Have the right perspective. Remember who you are before Christ. And then immediately after, after addressing them with this term of endearment, beloved, he gives this first directive. And he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So what he's doing here is he's pointing out that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will suffer. He tells them not to be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. I love that. Don't throw your hands up in disgust. Don't shake your head and say, I can't believe this is happening to me. Why is God doing this to me? Peter says, don't do that. Expect it. Now, we've already established in the introduction that this is nothing new. Hardship is always a corollary when biblical truth is spoken. And we see this all through the scripture. John 16, Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, Paul says, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. 2 Timothy 2, 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ, Jesus. As soldiers, you're in a war, you're suffering, but you're suffering looking towards the end. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We're going to suffer. And then 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right there. It's clear. We will be persecuted if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. 
It's expected. Don't be surprised. But notice in the text, he doesn't just say, don't be surprised when you face trials. He adds something in there. He says, don't be surprised when these trials are fiery. He emphasizes that these will be fiery trials. Now, this word indicates a a refining fire. He's not just saying these trials are going to be hard or or hot, if you will. That that is the case, but that's not what the the word is indicating here. It's, it's, It's indicating a refining work, a refiner's fire. The same word is used later on or earlier in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter points this out. Let me read that. It says, in this, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a purpose behind these trials is what he's saying. They're going to sanctify you. They're going to make you more like Christ. It's like a blacksmith when he he heats up precious metals, Peter's saying here. You have a cauldron or whatever, and you put the metal in there and you heat it up. And as you heat it up, it melts and the the impurities come to the top. Or the, the dross, it comes to the top. And they scrape it off. And they heat it up again. More impurities come up. And you keep doing that until you've got pure, precious metal. And Christ does that to us. He continues to heat us up to bring out the impurities, to bring out the the sin, so that we go to him. He wants to purify us. He wants to make us more like Christ. But it's not just us as individuals that he's purifying here. No, he's also purifying the church. It'll weed out lukewarm or superficial Christians. As the persecution comes, as suffering comes, those individuals will begin to fall to the wayside. Those who are only along for the ride, those who like the benefits of Christianity, they like coming to church, they like the fellowship, they like small groups, they like the potlucks, But when things get a little too hard, they're out of there. They don't want to deal with it. They're superficial. They're false converts. They're not really saved because Scripture tells us they went out from us because they were not really of us. And persecution has a way of working out false converts. You say, Joe, how can you say that? Well, Jesus says that. Matthew 13 1 through 23, in the parable of the sower, he talks about a sower who's walking along and he's, he's spreading seeds, some seeds falling on all different ground, hard ground, weedy ground, rocky ground. But the specific one I want to look at is when he describes the rocky ground. Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. This is Jesus, Jesus explaining this. He said, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. I notice in there, it says they have no root. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. They don't have the root, they don't have salvation, they're not truly saved, they fall away. 
They're, they're superficial believers. They don't stay the course. They don't finish the race. They don't persevere. And many times, these individuals, you run into them, and they'll, they'll say, I used to go to church, but ah, I don't go there anymore. They're hypocrites. They talk poorly against the church. Here's the thing, though. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ died for the church. And you're going to talk poorly against the bride of Christ? There's something wrong there. If you can talk harshly about the bride of Christ, whom he died for, you can't say, well, I'm just, a, I'm just kind of a rogue Christian. I do my own thing. I don't go to church, but I worship at home. I don't like church. I don't like the church. There's a big problem there because Christ died for the church. Examine yourself. As I was studying for this, I went back to an old book that I read a couple times called Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you have probably read that. There's one individual in there that I want to just touch on here. The main character in that book, his name is Christian, and he's leaving his hometown, which is the city of destruction. He's leaving the home, and he's going to the celestial city. He's got his eyes on that celestial city. He wants to go. He's got this burden on his back, and he begins to go. Well, two men chase him, come out of the city. One's named Obstinate, and the other's named Pliable. They're trying to get him to come back. They're saying, Christian, come on, you don't want to go there. That's, that's a bunch of garbage. And, but Christian is steadfast. He keeps his eyes on the celestial city. He won't listen to him. And finally, obstinate just leaves. But Pliable starts to listen to Christian. And he goes, oh yeah, I want that too. So he starts walking with Christian to the celestial city. They're on this journey. It seems really good. And all of a sudden, they fall into the slough of despond or the, the bog of despair, you could say. And it's, it's dirty, and it's suffering, it's hard, it's mucky. And Christian keeps pushing forward, and he's sinking, sinking deeper. But he knows the only way out of the slough of despond is to keep his eyes on Christ and on the celestial city. So he keeps going, but not pliable. Pliable gets mad, and he turns around and says, forget this, I'm going back to the city of destruction. And he turns around, and he goes back. He didn't press on. So let me ask you today, are you willing to face extreme persecution even to the point of perhaps death? Or even lesser persecution? Are you facing some sort of persecution today or some sort of suffering at work or at school? If you're not willing to, you may be just like pliable. You may be a false convert. Examine yourselves. You may be a superficial individual who's not truly saved. You have to understand this. If that's you, and this suffering is too much for you, the suffering you'll face after death as an unbeliever is far worse than the suffering you're facing here. Plus, it has no redeeming value. We could see that in 1 Peter 4, verse 17. That's right after our passage, but he says this, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The unbeliever will face eternal punishment in hell. And that's no redeeming value for that person at all. Peter doesn't want any of the people that he's writing to to respond like pliable when they're facing suffering. He wants them to re respond 
well. He wants them to be refined. He urges them in in chapter 1, verse 13, to prepare their minds for action, to keep sober in spirit, to fix their hope completely on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do this, and you'll be ready when persecution comes. Keep sober in, in spirit. Be renewing your mind through the word. Be in prayer. Be in communion with fellow believers. Do this and you won't fall into the slew of despond. Or if you do, you'll be rejoicing. Because you know who you are before Christ and you know who Christ is. You know that he saved you in your position before him. So you won't turn back. You'll persevere to the end. So let me just get real practical here. How will you fare on that day? Say, if the government tells you, if you gather together in church, you may be fined or arrested or put in jail. Now we say, oh, I would stand firm. Really? Examine your heart. Would you really stand firm? Would you be like Alice Driver or Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, If your work, the organization that you work for, they come to you and they say, okay, we're we're changing things a little bit. We need you to sign this paper here because we're, we're going a different direction. And we need you to sign this paper saying that you are in full, complete support of the LGBTQ agenda. And if you're not in full support and you don't go with us to the parades or whatever else, you're going to be fired. How will you respond? If the words of the Bible are labeled as hate speech by the federal government, and to speak them or even reference them could cause you to be fined or arrested, what would you do? How would you respond? And I know we think, well, that's not going to happen. Well, Peter says, don't be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you, as if something strange is happening to you. Don't be surprised. This has happened to all Christians throughout history. It's the norm, the reprieve that we have had in this country for the past 200 years. That's the anomaly. This little reprieve that we've had, this bubble that we've been in for the past 200 years, that's the weird thing. We're never promised in Scripture anywhere that life is going to be easy, that we're going to prosper in you know, financially or all these things. We're not promised that. We're promised the exact opposite as we just saw in those texts. We're promised that we're going to suffer. So how will you respond when this takes place? That's the next imperative. First, we're told don't be surprised. And now secondly, we're told to keep on rejoicing as you suffer for Christ. Keep on rejoicing. Look at the text, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. What does that mean? What does he mean by that? To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Well, how did Christ suffer? What did Christ suffer for? Christ suffered, one, for speaking the truth. He spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees, right? 
They would say that to him all the time. He, he's one who speaks with authority and not as the scribes and, Pharisees, yeah, scribes and Pharisees. He would say many times in Scripture, you have heard it said, but I say to you. His words had authority. And they persecuted him because of that. So when you speak the truth of God, you're speaking with authority. You will be persecuted. Now make sure you're not being persecuted for your arrogance or your being a jerk. The gospel should be what offends. But we'll look at more more of that in the next point. But if you're suffering for preaching the truth or teaching the truth, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Or if you're suffering for living a holy life or desiring greater sanctification in your life, you're, suffer, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. So when you face this, how should you respond? Should you complain or grumble? Should you seek vengeance or revenge? Should you riot or protest and demand your rights? My rights have to be protected. Is this how the Christian should respond to suffering and persecution? No. The text here tells us we're to rejoice in our sufferings. But he doesn't just say rejoice. That, that aspect of the text there, he says, keep on rejoicing. That has an ongoing and a steadfast meaning to it. This is in the present. It's imperative. It's indicating an ongoing action. It's not just a one-time thing. You did it one time. No, it's ongoing. You continually are rejoicing, no matter how hard things get. In fact, the harder things get, the more you should rejoice. Not because of your circumstances, once again. We don't rejoice if our circumstances are bad, or we rejoice if our circumstances are bad, even though we may not be happy. Happiness is dependent on our circumstances, but our joy is dependent on who we are before Christ and who Christ is. Our joy comes from that, and we rejoice. Now that phrase, keep on rejoicing, it also indicates a steadfastness, an unchanging. So in other words, you were rejoicing before the suffering began. The suffering starts, you continue to rejoice. If you don't die and the suffering ends, you continue to rejoice. It's steadfast, it's the same. You keep on rejoicing. It's not based on your circumstances. I mean, that just ties back to verse 12 where Peter tells us not to be surprised, but keep on rejoicing, as you did before. You're not surprised because you were rejoicing before, you're going to keep rejoicing. Rejoicing, you rejoice knowing that through these trials, you're being refined, you're being made more like Christ. We need to change our whole perspective on this. We're being made more like Christ. See them as a, as a cause to rejoice. Now the world, I understand, the world doesn't understand this. They see no redeeming value in, in suffering or persecution. They just want to get around it. They want to get through it. They want it to be over. They don't see the refining work of suffering. There's a, a, a story of two farmers. I don't know if this is true, but it's a good illustration, so I'm going to use it. There's... <laughs> There's two farmers. They lived right next to each other. And they would come out on their patio. One was an atheist. One was a Christian. They'd come out on their patio and they'd talk once in a while. Well, they both had these big pumpkin patches. Well, one season, 
The Christian's pumpkin patch froze and it was destroyed. But the atheist, his flourished. He was blessed. So one day, they come out onto their porch and the atheist couldn't resist because he was always mocking the Christian. He looks over and says, hey, what happened to your God? How come my patch flourished while yours died? How come he's letting you suffer but not me? And the Christian looks at him and he says, because God is growing men, not pumpkins. <laughs> he knew that the suffering was for his good. This is all throughout Scripture. We can see, we can look at text after text. Acts 5.41, when Peter and John were coming out of the temple and they were flogged, it says this in Acts 5.41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were rejoicing. We also see Jesus tell us this in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're blessed if you're going through these sufferings. You're being persecuted for his name. You're blessed. And then the one that we all know, you probably almost all have this memorized, James chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Produces endurance. So we're to rejoice in our sufferings. And this rejoicing should be ongoing. It should be steadfast all the time. We're to keep on rejoicing. But also in verse 13, we see that it should be enthusiastic. Not like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Oh, thanks for noticing. I'm okay, I'm fine. No, it says it should be enthusiastic. Verse 11, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. When Christ comes back, we're going to see him in his full glory. No longer will that glory be veiled. Praise the Lord. That, my, my friend, should bring about rejoicing, exaltation. Blissful, ecstatic, overwhelming rejoicing, knowing that. As we look toward that day, that should bring about the same enthusiastic rejoicing now because we know we're going to be a part of that. We're new creatures in Christ. We're never going to experience hell. So we've seen the negative directive, first of all. Don't be surprised when suffering or persecution comes upon you. And then secondly, we've been told to, to keep on rejoicing. So that's the positive. The negative, the positive. And then the third thing that Peter tells us here is more of a, a contemplative. Think about this, is what he's saying. And it is to make sure your suffering is for Christ. Verse 14 through 16. We talked about that a little bit, but look at the text. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, 
but it's to glorify God in this name. So here he's just, he's giving a contrast regarding these two different reasons for suffering. You have the praiseworthy suffering and you have the deserved suffering. Now the praiseworthy suffering, we've, we've touched on quite a bit, but let's just, let me just read it again, verses 14 and 16. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So suffering that takes place because you're living for Christ, all those things we talked about, that is praiseworthy suffering. It's praiseworthy. It should cause you to rejoice. If this is happening to you, take courage, remembering that you're blessed, that you're chosen of God, that you're his elect. You're set apart as his his child. The, The text tells us that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, the same spirit that rested on the Messiah rests on you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. Rejoice. Don't be ashamed when you suffer for Christ, but glorify God in his name. It's just reinforcing that aspect that we already talked about. But then you have the second aspect he's talking about here, and that's the deserved suffering. The deserved suffering in verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. So examine yourself. Don't cry. Persecution. Persecution. If you're getting exactly what you deserve. Or, as we said earlier, if you're being arrogant, if you're being a jerk. I find it interesting here in the text that we have two terms that are obviously condemnable to most people. Right off the bat. Murder and thievery. being, Being a thief. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief. We understand the consequences of these acts are justifiable punishment. Even to the point of the death penalty. The third term, evildoer, that's more of a general term. It just encompasses all crimes. When you're breaking the law, Peter's saying, if you're breaking the law and you're punished for it, you're not being persecuted. You're getting what you deserve. They've committed a crime. You're getting what you deserve. We see that in Romans 13. Right? Paul says, when talking about governing authorities, we're told, if you do what is evil, be afraid, for the government does not bear the sword for nothing. It has been given authority by God to punish evildoers. So if you're breaking the law and you're getting punished, don't be surprised. So make sure that you're not suffering for doing these things. But then he adds a fourth category. And that category can sometimes take us by surprise. We read that, we're like, why didn't he just add that with evil doers or evil deeds? Look at the text. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Then he adds, or a troublesome meddler. What is that? What's he talking about there? Why didn't he just add that with evildoer? Well, the word literally means one who meddles or could say interferes, gossips, or pries in things alien to their calling. That's what it means. So basically a troublemaker or an agitator, 
as Christians, you're never to be a troublemaker in society, an agitator in the society. Because of the context of where Peter's writing, remember, to those individuals who are about to be persecuted by Nero? We can understand that Peter's talking specifically here about political activism, sinful political activism, or civil agitation. Disruptive or illegal activity that interferes with just the, the everyday flowing, you know, work of society, government. It's just every day it's moving along, and you're interfering with that. Whether it be rebellion against Rome during this time that Peter's referring to, or riots in downtown Grand Rapids, or riots at the Capitol building. If you suffer for doing these things, you're facing the consequences for your actions. You're reaping what you sow. Peter wanted it to be clear that this kind of, of suffering was not a suffering worthy of rejoicing. He, he could have been, there was probably people that Peter was writing to who perhaps were zealots and they, they wanted to rebel against Rome. And he was saying, no, don't do this. If you do this and you are suffering for that, you're getting what you deserve. So, as we strive to live holy lives in this world and, and things get much more restrictive for Christians. And as persecution perhaps comes to our front door at some point, remember these imperatives and put them into practice. Don't be surprised when this happens. When you suffer as a Christian, when you suffer for Christ, don't be surprised. Suffering should be expected for the Christian. They're to purify you in the church. Don't be angry or, or disgusted, disgruntled. Don't be pliable. Don't turn away. Keep on rejoicing as you suffer for Christ. As you rejoice now, without persecution, keep on rejoicing during that persecution. And if you live, keep on rejoicing afterwards. And if you don't live, for you to die as Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And then make sure your suffering is for Christ. If you're suffering for civil disobedience, you're receiving the consequences for your sin. Unless the government's asking you to do something that's contrary to Scripture, unless they, they make a law that tells you you can't come to church, you can't read your Bible. But if it's a, just a, a reasonable law of the land and you're disobeying it, you're sinning. Because God gave them the authority in Romans 13. Don't be deceived in thinking that you're being persecuted if you bring this upon yourself. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer 
or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for giving us instructions, Lord, and reminding us who we are before a holy God, that we are new creatures, that we are born again, that we are no longer walking according to the course of this world, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, but that we are desiring to walk by the Spirit. And your word tells us when we do that, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Father, help us to be prepared as we face persecution, as we face suffering, that we would understand it's for your glory, that we would live holy in front of a lost world, stand firm for our beliefs, that we would not be arrogant or rude or ugly in our speech, but that we would be loving and kind, but not shrink back from speaking the truth of your word. We love you. We are so grateful for what you've done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.